unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Thamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. On February 1st, the Union government presented its budget for the upcoming fiscal year, setting the tone for its midterm year as the government pivots towards 2024 and the end of its second term. What are the biggest takeaways from the budget? How do the markets receive it? And what does it tell us about India's uncertain economic recovery? To discuss these questions and much, much more, I am joined today by Roshan Kishore, Roshan is the data and political economy editor at the Hindustan Times, and he has covered this year's budget, as he does every year, in extensive detail. He is a longtime friend of the podcast, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Roshan, good to talk to you. Hi, Milan. It's very nice to be back here. So I want to ask you about the nitty gritty of the budget, of course. But before we get to that, I want to ask if you could maybe provide some useful context for our listeners. You know, headed into this year's budget presentation, there were a lot of signs of recovery, some continued signs of stress, some uncertainty about oil prices, about the pandemic. How would you characterize the state of the economy headed into this budget presentation? Milad, there are two ways to look into it. Uh, one, like you said, you know, uh, everybody has been you know, talking about the fact that the Indian economy is back to pre-pandemic levels in 2021-22. Now, that is an important achievement, no doubt. Uh, because India suffered a huge contraction, around 7.3% of its GDP in the pandemic year. But I think th we need to keep in mind two, three facts. You know, first is that in 2019-20, that is the pre-pandemic year, India's GDP growth, now that we have the revised estimates, actually fell down to just 3.7%. That basically means that the pre-pandemic bar for the Indian economy is actually quite low. You know, at one point of time, there was talk of India doing double-digit growth rates, and we are talking 3.7% here. That's one. Second, even with this you know, revival above the pre-pandemic growth rates, what has not recovered to pre-pandemic levels is India's private consumption. It is more than half of India's GDP. And we know for a fact that the poor actually consume a greater share of their incomes than the rich do. So it basically means that the poor continue to suffer in the economy. Now, those are the macro numbers. Now, let us look at the more recent numbers. You know, last week, the RBI had its monetary policy meeting and the consumer confidence index were released. We also have some measures of business confidence. What we see today is an unprecedented divergence of sort between consumer confidence and business confidence. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we'll talk about inflation and all that as we go. But for me, this is the biggest you know, uh, economic number in which you have to put the budget into context. In the, in the Indian economy today, there's a very huge class divergence in the economic system. The really well-off sections of the economy have recovered. They, in fact, seem to be doing much better than what they were before the pandemic. Whereas the bottom half, I'm afraid probably more than that of the economy, actually continues to suffer in a very big way. So could I just push you on that a little bit, Roshan? Because, you know, if you take everything that you've said as fact and as a given, you know, I think government officials would still say, OK, but look at the rest of the world. Uh, India has bounced back remarkably well compared to everyone else, right? So if everyone else has been hit by the same wave, are we expecting too much for India to be such a kind of positive outlier? Well, if one were to you know, judge this claim on the basis of economic performance in just you know, FY21 and FY22, I would agree with you know, the official version of this. The problem is India has had a very prolonged slowdown even coming into the pandemic. You know, we've discussed it earlier also on your show. 
where our growth right from 2016-17 to 2019-20 actually fell from 8.3% to 3.7%. Now, the, that pre-pandemic pain did not vanish with the pandemic. So, you know, if, if if the target is to manage a statistical achievement that you actually have to grow you know, for one year, say, at 8% and then go back to a normal growth, then yes, we are fine. But if what India is interested in, and that is the stated policy goal, that you want to situate yourself in a long-term, sustainable, high-growth rate phase, then we have to take into account these things. Where is future growth going to come from? As long as the bottom of the of, of the economy doesn't fire, I mean, that those kind of high-growth rates we are not going to be able to get. So I want to ask you about an analysis piece that you did for the Hindu Sun-Times right after the budget came out. And in it, you wrote that this year's budget, quote, has prioritized long-term growth over short-term growth. Tell us in a nutshell what you think this government strategy was in trying to address these different cross-currents and headwinds facing the economy. You know, Miller, you know, after India became independent, uh, we actually adopted a planning model of you know, economic development. So India used to have five-year plans. The last five-year plan ended in 2012. Then the Modi government came in 2014 and the planning commission was formally abolished. Uh, this year's budget actually talks about an economic vision for the next 25 years. So nine, uh, 2022 is the 75th year of India's independence and the budget officially talks about economic development goals when India completes 100 years of its independence in 2047. So that way it's beaten even the planning model which was you know, considered to be a pre-reform legacy. Uh, what the budget seems to be betting on and you know, and this is an exercise which in a way undermines the very sanctity of the budget because the budget, essentially speaking, is about the government's annual spending and you know, uh, resource generation exercise. By making a 25-year lo uh, long plan, which the finance minister said in her speech, will overall India's infrastructure and therefore crowd in private investment, it's a very long-term bet on growth. You know, like I said, you know, when your problem is that private consumption is lagging, when your problem is that you were actually doing, say, 7.5-8% no, uh, growth rate four or five years ago, and you were doing 37 before the pandemic, and you were struggling to come back to those levels even today, private consumption uh, no, will not revive by building more highways and bridges. So, you know, in principle, there's nothing wrong with this long-term vision, but I have my doubts on what exactly it will do to boost the short-term growth. But, but is this just a, a difference of visions, Roshan, between a kind of supply side and demand side uh, economic perspective? Because a lot of people would say, look, the, the multiplier effects, if you invest in infrastructure, are really large. What we need to do is have, you know, roads and ports and infrastructure that's going to create construction jobs that's then going to spill into the service sector. And so that in the long term is much more effective than just doing cash transfers or doing rural employment guarantee or doing the usual kind of palliative measures. Um, how would you respond to that? Uh, I'll come to the palliative measures later, Milan. Uh, but I completely agree with the logic that government capex, you know, compared to, say, revenue expenditure, has a higher multiplier. But we have to keep some numbers in mind. Uh, how big is the government's capital expenditure component compared to the overall economy? If you look at these this year's numbers, and and you know experts and analysts have questioned about what you know that entire number is actually new spending, it's around four percent of India's GDP, the total central government capital spending. So it's a very small component of the economy. Now, even with a significantly high multiplier effect on its own, it's not going to say you know generate momentum for the economy. And this is something which the budget completely accepts. The budget says that it hopes that this public investment will actually crowd in private investment. So in a way, the bet is on private investment. 
Now, what is holding back private investment in India? Uh, if you look at capacity utilization levels, uh, I mean, they were released just before the Monetary Policy Committee meeting last week. They continue to be very low compared to pre-pandemic levels. So it is one thing to hope that businesses will bring in more investment once the infrastructure is you know, overhauled and all that. But as long as capacity utilization levels do not rise, which basically requires the private demand to increase, we are not going to go to a high growth path immediately. You know, I, I wrote it in one of my you know, uh, columns before the budget. You know, that it, you know, what the government is hoping is you know, uh, claiming that the Indian economy by its capex push will actually win a, say, you know, a race like the marathon. But you, know, you can't be losing momentum in the short run and hoping to win a marathon. You know, for that to happen, you actually have to focus on what will drive short-run growth in the economy. Uh, there, the budget has a problem. There's nothing wrong with the long-term vision, but that vision may get jeopardized if the short-run growth keeps on going down. So, so, so I think the natural follow-on question for you, Roshan, is, okay, obviously the government has to be able to do multiple things at one time. It can invest in long-term growth. It can invest in CapEx. At the same time, it has to deal with a short-term uh, problem with demand and consumption and the fact that you know the poor and less well-off have been really hit very hard right, by this quote-unquote K-shaped recovery. What are some of the things economists are saying the government should have done in terms of taking more aggressive steps to stimulate demand? Uh, to be fair to the government, uh, it's a difficult situation. I'll give two, three examples. Uh, now, what did the budget not do? I mean, uh, what it did was a huge focus on CAPEX. It actually bets on you know, manufacturing, this talk of special economic zones and all that. What it did not do was, you know, programs such as the NREGS, food subsidy, etc. have actually seen a cut. What it did not do was social sector spending has been maintained at low levels in order to make room for capital spending. Now, uh, I am you no, know, I am not for a second undermining the importance of programs such as the NREGS or social sector spending in India. Uh, they actually played a very important role in preventing large-scale distress during the pandemic. But these million, like you said, are palliative measures. You know, if you put money in these schemes, you will actually prevent large-scale distress. You will not see starvation deaths in the country. You will not see people going through absolute penury. But this cannot be expected to boost the Indian economy's growth potential. Uh, you know, it cannot take you from, say, 4% to 8% growth rate. I think the larger problem is, and this is not a question which this budget alone could have, could have addressed. Even before the pandemic, like you said, you know, it, it's a supply side versus a demand side debate. The Indian economy had been in a slowdown uh, and the government's uh, approach to that slowdown was, you know, uh, I think basically it was in a denial mode because there was no serious effort to engage with the reasons of the slowdown. And you know, it, it kept on saying that the economy has bottomed out and will start recovering. Uh, my view of the issue has been that that slowdown is a result of the policy-driven squeeze on informal sector in the Indian economy. It started with demonetization, gained more momentum with goods and services tax. And what we have been witnessing is a progressive squeeze on the informal sector in the economy. That sector actually caters to the largest amount of poor people. I, I would rather say the non-rich people in this country and therefore gives incomes to people who have a very high marginal propensity to consume. If the Indian economy has to regain its growth potential, uh, and you know, uh, independent economies, for example, Pranjul Bhandari has written on it. She said that you can actually, a forced approach to formalization can generate headwinds for economic growth. I think there has to be a reversal on that front. You know, It's not a question of putting a trillion rupees more in NRGS or food subsidy. Unless we are able to prevent that policy squeeze on informal sector, reverse it, we are not going to say a revival in uh, Indian economy's growth fortune. 
Roshan, I think here what the government would say is that there are short-term costs associated with things like the goods and services tax. There are costs associated with the insolvency and bankruptcy code. There are costs associated with digitization of the economy. But over time, you're going to start to see uh, real benefits, right? You're going to start to see social protection improve. You're going to start to see, um, uh, you know, whether it's the tax net or revenue collection, you know, start to improve. And so I, I guess the question is, how do you judge the trade-off between the short-term pain and the long-term gain? Well, Milan, like Kane said, in the long run, we're all dead. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I think, you know, uh, in principle, one can have a debate on these lines. Uh, the problem is, uh, you know, the government's long term, you know, seems to be getting prolonged because remember, they started in 2016-17. We right. are already in, you know, uh, 22-23. Uh, it has yeah. not come. Number two, it is very difficult in India to have an informed debate on these issues because and uh, and there the blame squarely lies on the government. You know, we do not have consumption expenditure data in this country after 2011-12. A report came for 17-18. It was scrapped by the government. Uh, you know that report actually showed that real consumption had fallen for the first time you know, in independent India. Right, and that was a that was a big bombshell yes. when when uh, when the leaked report. We do not uh, was, have was... Uh, you know uh, a latest survey of informal sector enterprises in that in this country. You know that is actually a very important input into calculation of GDP statistics because that is how you extrapolate the informal sector incomes into the GDP. The last survey was done in 2015-16, which is before demonetization and GST. Unless these numbers are brought out in the open. Unless we know how exactly these things have changed, you know, uh, after these policies, which actually are supposed to have hurt the informal sector in a big way, we cannot have an informal debate. The government has been throwing statistics at us, but those statistics have no comparable metrics in the pre-demonetization, pre-GST fields. So it is very difficult to take those, you know, claims on face value. And this, I think, you know, the longer the government uh, delays, you know, we do not even have a census in this country. It's 2022 today. And, you know, I mean, India has never delayed its census since 1881. The census also is actually a big source of a lot of important, important indicators. So unless the government, you know, expedites the process of publishing these very crucial statistical information, you know, about the economy, uh, you know, most independent analysis have a very good reason to sort of, you know, be skeptical of what the government has been claiming. I mean, we, we have reason to doubt its intent. Very fair point. One of the things that we do have data on are uh, new investment flows, CapEx projects, uh, bank non-performing assets. You know, since the early part of the previous decade, economists have been worried about this twin balance sheet problem, right? That is, you have these banks weighed down by non-performing assets, high levels of indebtedness facing large firms, especially those in the infrastructure domain. These are things that we can actually track over time. As we look towards a new fiscal year, how concerned are you that these lingering issues um, from the kind of pre-COVID era are going to continue to plague the recovery in the post-COVID era? Uh, as far as the question of twin balance sheet crisis is concerned, Milan, uh, I think one can say with a reasonable degree of confidence, you know, I mean, there's no predicting the future perfectly, that the worst is behind us now. Uh, you know, it is another question you know, uh, uh, issue that you know there's a significant amount of money which is still caught in bank frauds and all that, and one has to see how the IBC deals with that. Uh, but uh, both bank balance sheets and corporate balance sheets are in a good shape. You know, private bankers have been on record saying that we are actually willing to lend, but nobody's coming to borrow. We have seen during the pandemic that the lot some of the biggest corporations in India 
they've actually retired their debt rather than take fresh debt. So rather than making fresh investment, you know, companies such as Reliance have actually been retiring their debt. Uh, I think the problem with the Indian economy today and what it was immediately after the 2008 global financial crisis, which is when the origins of the twin balance sheet crisis came into being, is that then the Indian economy was what you call an overheated economy. There was irrational exuberance and that ultimately contributed to the buildup of ba no, uh, bad loans, etc. Today, the Indian economy is not overheated by any stretch of imagination. The problem is the beers seem to have taken over. If you look at CMI data on CAPEX, for example, private CAPEX, at least the new capital you know, project announcements, which is what is the most important you know, metric of market sentiment, etc., seems to be doing rather badly compared to, say, the past levels. So the problem today is not whether banks have the money to lend it or whether corporates have that you know, space on their balance sheets. If you look at metrics such as the interest coverage ratio, things have actually improved. Uh, today, the Indian economy's problem is do cap corporates, large companies even feel the need to take money from banks to make fresh investments? Capacity utilization levels tells us, tell us that actually that not that might not be the case. About the small enterprises, the MSME, which are the crucial sectors for the employment generation in the country, we actually don't know for a fact. Uh, if we had that informal sector data, we would be in a much better position to say that. Hey, Grant the Marshall listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. So, uh, Roshan, you know, we've been talking about what was in the budget, what's been left out of the budget. One of the things many economists uh, would have liked to have seen is a some kind of fiscal consolidation roadmap for the medium term. Um, now, there's a big debate about this as well. At a time when consumption is so depressed, investment needs a fill up. You know, some analysts have said, look, we're we economists are obsessing too much over the fiscal deficit numbers. Uh, it's not a priority right now. We have to get growth going again. Uh, how would you respond to this? Uh, in principle, Milan, there are two ways to look at the question of fiscal consolidation. Uh, you can either track the numerator, which is, say, the question of you know, how much fiscal deficit in absolute terms you incur, what is going to be the level of your national debt, etc. Or you start tracking the denominator, which is fiscal deficit as a percentage of GDP or national debt as a percentage of GDP at any given point of time. Uh, I think the sensible way to you know, do it for a country like India is uh, at a time when you actually had a slowdown even before the pandemic for three, four years and you actually suffered a contraction, uh, what India should be doing is tracking its numerator. To, I mean, the only way to effectively manage the fiscal situation is to make sure that you actually get on a high growth path. Uh, there, I think, uh, you know, the government has taken a sensible approach that it has not uh, uh, undertaken fiscal consolidation very, you know, in a very sudden manner. Uh, and when I say this, we have to remember that this does not mean that the fiscal impulse to the Indian economy is increasing. It is actually going down because we have actually come from, say, a 9% fiscal deficit to a 6.4% fiscal deficit level. Uh, so, yes, the fiscal stimulus is being withdrawn. The fiscal situation would have been much worse had it not been for, say, around a trillion rupees of extra cushion, which the government has collected in taxes from petrol and diesel. Uh, remember, petrol diesel prices in India are at an all-time high. Even though crude prices, you know, they're now in the 90 range, 
but uh, uh, petrol diesel prices when they were frozen in November, they were much lower than what they were during the UPA two years. So yes, I think it's a sensible strategy to prioritize growth over immediate fiscal consolidation. Uh, but it does not mean that no, I mean this very large fiscal you know stimulus at play in the Indian economy at the moment. So I want to ask you a little bit about India and the world. Uh, the economist Poonam Gupta highlighted a couple of areas where the government may have missed an opportunity. And one of the things that she said in a piece in the Economic Times, and we'll link to that, is that in order to foster growth at rates much higher than in the past, India needs a vision to integrate itself into these global value chains, right? But if you look at the budget and you read the speech, there's a lot in there about self-reliance, about strengthening domestic manufacturing, about indigenization in the defense sector, for instance. Do you think that India is headed in the wrong direction uh, in this front at a time when it should be integrating itself into the world? It is turning inward? It's it's a vexed issue, Milan. For example, today, you know, uh, Raghuram Rajan and Rohit Lamba have an opinion piece out where they actually say that India should not even be pursuing the manufacturing or, say, you know, uh, the China objective anymore. And our strength lies in services. There's been a lot of criticism you know, on the question which you raised. You know, Arvind Sourmanem has been writing extensively about it, that our duty structure has actually been inverted. It sort of defeats the purpose. Uh, no, I would say, I think, to have an informed opinion on this question, I mean, requires a lot of research, which is beyond my journalistic capabilities. But I would say two, three basic points. Oh, no, I think historically, we know that no country has actually managed a successful economic transition into a middle-income status without having a manufacturing revolution. So the need for India giving a boost to its manufacturing actually, you know, I think is still valid. Uh, uh, economic history, you know, even in the post-Second World War period, actually also tells us that countries have not had manufacturing revolutions with a hands-off approach by policy or government. Uh, you know, whether we look at South Korea and you know, other Southeast Asian countries, government policy has played a role. Uh, now, even countries such as the United States are actually talking about an industrial policy. Uh, I think, you know, uh, personally speaking, I will always be in favor of a hands-on policy approach rather than, say, you know, a completely less fair kind of an arrangement. Uh, does it mean what India is doing is exactly right? Uh, frankly speaking, I said I do not know. The budget had a lot of custom duty announcement. It, there was talk about reviving, you know, the special economic zone discussion in India and all that. Uh, you know, Raghuram Rajan, for example, and Rohit Lama in the piece, they say that we do not know whether, you know, these you know, perks, these incentives are going to... Uh, I mean, enterprises which are worthy of these concessions or they are being managed politically, you know, I mean, to people who are close to the regime. We know in India's political economy structure that the later is a possibility which cannot be ruled out. You yourself have been talking about the kind of increasing opacity in political finance in this country. Uh, so it's a very slippery path. Uh, I mean, it is a path where there's a very thin line between trying to promote domestic manufacturing and you know, either encouraging cartels or you know, uh, sort of you know, giving artificial support to uncompetitive manufacturing. You know, for example, Milan, India backed out of the RCEP negotiations last year after having negotiated for a very long time. You know, politically, the decision was sold as something which was pro-farmer. But we know for a fact that Indian manufacturing even today is not, uh, it, it cannot live up to those, the, the kind of competition which RCEP would have brought to it. So we have a very difficult problem here. Uh, I, I would you know, think that you know the way to handle this is still some sort of a hands-on policy question. Whether this approach is exactly right or not, I, I am not in a position to say. Uh, fair enough. L let me kind of pivot, though, by asking you just a second about the global scenario. Um, there are a lot of potential headwinds out there. Uh, we're hearing a lot 
in the United States and Europe, elsewhere about rising inflation, rising oil prices, you already mentioned. And, you know, we should just mention there's a lot of uncertainty still left about COVID. People think we've maybe managed this uh, Omicron surge, but we don't know what comes next. Could you tell us a little bit about what trends going on in the world Indian policymakers should be paying attention to? What are some of the assumptions that the government is making that could be undercut if there's some kind of exogenous shock uh, somewhere else? Let's uh, go back six, seven years, Milan. I think around 2015, uh, when the Delhi Assembly elections were taking place, the Prime Minister Modi in a political speech in Delhi actually said that, you know, by electing the BJP and me as Prime Minister, you've actually brought good fortunes on yourself because crude oil prices have fallen to around $45 per barrel. Uh, uh, you know, go back to those times. Crude was below $50 per barrel. Uh, you know, interest rates in the United States after the taper scare were actually back to, you know, practically zero once again. Uh, you know, it created a very favorable situation for a country like India. You know, uh, because when crude prices go up, India is you know, hit from three sides. The fiscal deficit goes up because you... Politically, it's suicidal to sort of increase prices. Your current account gets hit because India imports 80% of its energy requirements. And inflation starts increasing at a very fast rate. Uh, you know, the money, you know, uh, the practically zero interest rate regime in the United States and advanced countries has actually been very good for the Indian stock markets. You know, even during COVID, you saw that the Indian stock markets actually made a you know, very handsome recovery. Now, our price equity ratio even today is among the highest you know, uh, among major economies. Uh, a lot of people made a lot of money in the stock markets, and that money actually reflects in consumption spend, consumption decisions in the economy, whether you know, the super rich are buying the second house during COVID and all that. Uh, those good times are clearly over. Oil's not going to go back to you know $50 per barrel anytime soon. You know, more, most people actually say that it'll never go back to those kind of prices because you know, uh, more fresh investments are actually going to go into renewables. Interest rates, no are going to be increasing. How much is a question which you know, probably we'll have to see, but there's no going back to those kind of low interest rate regimes. So it means that the tailwinds which the Indian economy enjoyed from those sides are over. Now, <clears throat> the budget says that you know, crude prices are expected to be between 70 to $75. You know, I mean, right now, if, if I mean, uh, I would love to know your take on what's happening to the Russia-Ukraine thing, because if that you know, goes for a toss, then we, do, we have no idea where oil prices will go. Uh, you know, once interest rate starts rising, you know, a lot of money which used to come to Indian stock markets, a lot of money which actually came to the Indian startup ecosystem. Because remember, these were venture capitalist funds who were getting negative returns in the country. Uh, so they had you know, nothing better rather than put this money in emerging markets, etc. Those kind of tailwinds are going to dissipate. What exactly will their effect be? We don't know. But we know for a fact that the tide has turned. So, uh, Roshan, let me kind of end this conversation by asking you a little bit about kind of India's trend growth rate. Many economists have said ad nauseum in your paper and many others that, you know, what India really needs to address its severe developmental needs is a sustained trend growth rate north of 70% for many years to come. I'm wondering, you know, what is the consensus today about where India's trend growth rate is uh, and for it to nudge higher? What sorts of changes or reforms do you think are needed? Well, in the World Economic Outlook released October last year, the IMF said that it sees India's potential growth rate at 6% now, I mean, which was a reduction of 25 basis points from 6.25. Uh, uh, so that's one, you know. Uh, I think, you know, 
in india like you said the policy response has been that we we are still world's fastest growing economy we will go back to doing 8% 9% growth rate you know from next year so the government is still not willing to accept that you know there's been some long term damage to the indian economy either from its you know forced formalization policies or the pandemic uh, because we do not have independent data you know from sources such as the consumption expenditure survey the informal sector survey etc it's difficult to you know i mean if you want to predict india's trend growth i mean there has to be some quantitative modeling exercise uh, you know i unfortunately you know uh, it's beyond my capabilities to do that but the larger question i think you seem to be asking is uh, do we fear that there's been a damage to india's long term growth potential i think there's a very large share of economists in india who would actually agree to that question uh, you know if you see the monetary policy committee meetings uh, mbc minutes for example economists have been saying that you know the reason monetary policy has been unable to sort of uh, push india's growth rate even before the pandemic etc is that you know it can actually you know help a cyclical problem it can't help a structural problem uh, this you know uh, uh, i think for the government to start acting on this issue i mean there has to be a recognition of the fact that if there's been damage why did the damage occur in the first place the government's vision you know like is evident from the budget is that the way for the indian economy to go forward is to build more infrastructure integrate more successfully with global value chains and then we'll actually at some point of time achieve the china trajectory where you know we'd have gleaming highways from factories to ports and we will actually have a greater share of export markets the question is you know the basic assumption that is the global economy going to allow somebody like a china and that kind of access to their markets even true today you know i personally think that it does not hold today a lot of economists i think would agree then the question comes as to how do you then support growth i think one i mean it has to be inward looking export i mean there's still a lot of scope for improving india's labor intensive exports and all that but the basic boost to growth has to come from inward looking policy and i think you know say the top 20% of uh, i mean india has actually done very well and the best way and the most sustainable way to boost growth is to actually i mean encourage the income and consumption of the bottom 70% 60% in india uh, if you ask me personally the best way to do that would be in india you know if there's one thing the rich actually i mean the poor actually outspend themselves on it's education uh, i mean the pandemic has taught us that it can be health so if the government you know i mean the capex focus is justified it probably will have long term returns but if the government were to find a way if it were to find the conviction to sort of i mean help poor people mitigate their health and education spending and that money if it could be diverted towards say you know more consumption goods durable consumer goods and that kind of stuff you would actually see some sort of a permanent boost to growth uh, the problem is india's you know political economy has actually gone in a direction where more and more state governments you know and our friend nilanjan sarkar and yamini have actually written about it very beautifully more and more state governments are actually feeling compelled to throw uh what i would say you know very you know uh, unproductive dole such as you know you give say 20000 rupees to a girl student who's just complete graduation and things like that rather than make you know this sustained spending in social sector uh, investment which will actually you know take care of long term growth of the indian economy i mean this is something the finance secretary also you know talked about in an interview he said today state governments in india are extremely reluctant to do uh, uh, you know capital spending on on most sectors so india has to you know uh, i mean uh, the, the challenge of uh, boosting india's long term growth cannot bypass its larger political economy angle 
and if we keep competing on the welfare route you no know, which is basically which government is going to give how much disposable money to people just like that no strings attached i see very little hope my guest on the show this week is roshan kishore he is the data and political economy editor of the hindustan times he has looked into all the nooks and crannies of this year's budget so that you don't have to uh roshan thank you so much for sharing your insights with us and with our listeners thanks a lot milan Grant Tamasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HD Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com, India's fastest-growing podcasting platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Caroline Duckworth, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff J. Pranada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.